You're listening to an audiobook presentation of The Grendel's Shadow by Andrew Maine. You can purchase it for 99 cents on Amazon, on their Kindle store, on your Kindle, or on all major phones using the Kindle app, including iPhones, Androids, Blackberries, and Windows 7. It's also available on the Nook store and Apple's iBooks. Or you can buy this entire audio presentation uninterrupted or a physical copy at andrewmaine.com slash books. Chapter 5 The town of Vineport was a ramshackle collection of wooden warehouses, flop houses, and supply shops that stretched up either hill that formed the mouth of the river the lake fed through. It looked like a Mississippi River post from the 1870s, which is what it was based upon. White and charcoal-colored smoke spewed from various chimneys and smokestacks as refiners and tanners went about their work. The sounds of steam engines could be heard from various points in the city. Steamboats, sailboats, and keelboats moved along the water into various ports that lined the river. Smythe led them across a cobblestone path and down several side streets to the meat market. The people they passed on their way were dressed in either suits or frontier clothing. Not surprisingly, Alan caught a few glimpses of women moving along the streets in clothing that was somewhat more contemporary and likely cobbled off a pattern based on something off-world. Westwood and Smythe walked briskly. Alan tried to keep up. The weather wasn't too hot or humid, but he quickly built up a sweat trying to follow them. Smythe pointed his cane to a group of several dozen people waiting on a pier. Families sat there surrounded by suitcases, livestock, and heirlooms like wind-up record players. Most of them are from around Grassy Bend. They're waiting for boats to take them to the downlands. Others would like to leave, but they're afraid to leave in case their missing family members are found. He shook his head. At least to just be able to bury them. Smythe led them on a side street where people were getting off a steam-powered cable car. We have plans to build a railway all the way up to Grassy Bend and beyond, but that's on hold now, of course. A woman carrying an infant walked alongside a small boy, pushing his grandmother in a wooden wheelchair. They all seemed in a trance. The old woman's eyes looked up at Westwood in recognition. She reached out a crooked hand to grab his. He placed both hands on hers, her eyes now welled up, and she nodded. No words were exchanged between them, but the message was clear. The little boy picked up his pace to catch up with his mother. Alan hadn't noticed it before. But people who weren't dressed in the suits and fancy dresses seemed to take notice of Westwood. Too polite to say anything, they'd give him a nod or tip their hat. They made eye contact. Westwood returned the gesture politely and kept moving. From behind him, Alan heard a wheezy honking sound and moved to get out of the way of the ground car, only to be surprised by a carriage pulled by two giant avian creatures that looked like a cross between a rooster and a Tyrannosaurus rex. The honking was from one of the creatures that gave him the evil eye as it passed. Alan jumped back. Westwood motioned to Smythe that the creatures went by. Are those the brush birds you mentioned? One species. That's the closest one to being domesticated, if barely at that. You'll probably see their larger cousins at the market. Those are the runts? Alan had seen more odd creatures than he could remember, but the nasty look on the brush bird gave him as it passed had left him unsettled. The market looked like a million other open-air markets on a thousand other worlds. People in aprons at various stalls were hawking everything from fish that looked part squid and part shark to sides of meat that if reassembled would create a creature so large it would have difficulty fitting inside the market itself. 
If not for the alien creatures in various states of dismemberment, a 2nd century Roman or 20th century Chinese would have felt at home. Westwood walked over to a large leg that stretched across the table. Stood on end, it would have been taller than him. He ran his hand over the foot. Do we have our first suspect? asked Alan. Westwood pointed out the cloven foot. This is an herbivore. Most likely, that is. He looked around the stall, then spoke to a squat man in a bloody apron behind the counter. Where do these come from? Near the river. They graze on seagrass. The man looked at Westwood's hunting rifle. I'll pay four per pound if you're interested. Perhaps another time. Have you ever seen one wounded before? I mean by another animal, perhaps a wound that healed over. They come in with scratch marks on their back sometimes. Westwood pulled out his journal. How far apart and how deep? The man held his hands a few inches apart. About that far apart, three claws, two or three fingers across. Westwood made a note. One more question. How many pups in a litter? I've never seen more than one. Westwood made another note and moved on to the next stall. On a blood-soaked table were buckets of intestines of various sizes. A woman with silver hair tied back in a bun leaned over a cauldron, stirring them into a putrid concoction. She paid him no mind as he poked around the intestines with a pencil. Suddenly, the market erupted into a large clamor, and Westwood turned just as Alan screamed out, Good Lord! Alan turned and grabbed the back of his pants, which were torn open, to see a crab-like thing as high as his waist in a metal cage angrily snapping one of his pincers at him, the other pincer triumphantly holding aloft the seat of his pants like a battle flag at just one. Alan stared in disbelief. When it was apparent he was unharmed, laughter erupted from the market. Smythe ran to his side. Please watch out for the river crabs. They're quite easily agitated. Smythe gave Alan another look over as he pulled him away from the angry crab. Agitated? Find me a river cow and I'll make enough butter to finish that one off for good. Alan gave the crab his most stern look. The crab made a clicking sound. Alan flinched. Smythe pointed his cane at the crab. They kill more people each year than brushbirds. Westwood worked his way over to the two of them. Would you two do me the favor of getting yourself killed now rather than later so I don't have to drag your body all the way back here? He turned to Smythe. I have a list of things we'll need. Can you see to whether they're packed up on the boat for the trip to Grassy Bend? Smythe took the list from Westwood and looked it over. I think we have everything in the next couple hours. I'll gather those while you meet with Dr. Sajay at the University Zoological Station. He pointed down the valley. It's about 20 minutes that way. I told her to expect you. Smythe gave Alan's pants a glance. I'll see to you a new pair of pants. Although I don't think we'll be able to get them starched and pressed in time. Alan waved off the comment, not sure if it was made in earnest or jest. Chapter 6 Westwood and Allen made the walk to the station on foot. They declined several passing steam trolleys in order to take in more of the port town. Aside from the usual blacksmiths, supply stores, texture mills, and other industries that every frontier city had, there were dozens of distilleries and refineries around Vineport that made up its main industry of extracting various chemicals and solutions from the gigantic trunk-like vines that covered both continents. Different saps from the hundreds of species of vine trees could be used to make everything from plastic resins to a brandy-tasting alcohol that mixed with tea was the drink of choice on Vineland. 
Alan had only been on a handful of frontier worlds. He couldn't make up his mind if he thought the way the people dealt with their anachronistic lifestyle was noble or foolhardy. The one thing he did know was that the people there were different from his friends who grew up on developed planets. They had a kind of patience and even passion they could only begin to fathom. As he looked at people going about their work in soot-colored clothes, shoveling manure and driving horses and nasty birds out to the great dark green expanse of untamed valley that lied just beyond Vineport, he got a thrill of excitement. Out there was the unknown. No automatics, nanobots, or sterilized safety nets to protect him from folly. This was why he became a reporter. A cool breeze chilled his backside, reminding him of the recent encounter with local wildlife. He was actually able to grin about the unpredictability of it all. He made a mental note to be more careful and to sit closely to Westwood's side. The man was a survivor for a reason. The University Zoological Station was on the outskirts of a town on the higher end of a hillside. It was surrounded by the dark green tree trunks of small vine trees with a staircase cut from one leading up to the entrance. A small steam engine could be heard puttering away in the background. At the top of the stairs, a middle-aged woman wearing a lab coat and dark skin, like Dr. Smythe, greeted them. She had a warm smile and laugh lines, character earned from hard experience on this world that Alan appreciated. Dr. Westwood, it's a pleasure to meet you, even under these circumstances. She held a door open for them to enter. Westwood took off his hat and gave Dr. Sajay a smile, introduced Alan, walked over to a wooden table, lit from a bright overhead gas lamp, the table was an array of skulls and various bone fragments. Westwood picked one up and scrutinized it. He traced a finger over the thick brow ridge, common among most of the animals on the planet. Alan looked around the room. It was filled with glass cases and shelves of books, many of which looked like handwritten journals from the spines. He looked into one of the glass cases at a row of pickle jars filled with strange creatures. Frog-like animals with thick spines, fish with tentacles, and a few that looked like normal rodents and other terrestrial animals. Because farming and trunk vine extracts are our main industries on Vineland, our university is mainly focused on agriculture and chemistry. I apologize that we don't have more of a zoological department, she said in an embarrassed tone. Westwood looked up from the jawbone he was examining. You've done well with what you have here. I've been to much more developed worlds that have less. What matters is the science, and I've heard good things. Dr. Sajay seemed to brighten with the compliment. I've brought out samples of every known carnivore we have, plus a few of the aggressive herbivores. I can pull out a complete skeleton if you'd like. Westwood set the skull down and picked up a large jawbone that had a beak-like shape. How representative is this collection? People are bringing in smaller creatures almost every day, larger ones every few weeks. We've begun to put together a cladogram, but we know it's very incomplete. We haven't even begun any kind of survey on the other continents, much less the oceans. Alan walked over to the bones, being careful not to touch anything. Even if they were dead, he didn't want to press his luck. How similar is life here to terrestrial creatures? He was afraid it was a stupid question, but he asked anyway. Dr. Sajay looked at Westwood to answer, but he was making notes on skull thickness with a pair of calipers from his kit. Obviously, every planet is alien, but... Because we tend to choose Earth-like worlds to settle in, you tend to see similar patterns over and over. Just like on Earth. Kangaroos for deer, Triceratops for rhinoceros. But even on Earth, those are only 
proximal. Knowing how one fits into a niche doesn't mean you understand its analog, or even if it's really an analog. When the larger dinosaurs went extinct, nothing on Earth filled that niche in a one-to-one -one ratio. Instead, you had several creatures taking up the void left by Brachiosaurus or Tyrannosaurus rex. She picked up a small skull with sharp fangs and a pointed nose that looked like a black beak. If you looked at the complete skeleton and saw how this hunted, the closest Earth analogy would probably be an Earth jungle cat, or maybe a marsupial predator. But its heart is much more like a bird's, and its bones are more similar to cartilage. Anatomically, it more closely resembles a parrot. Of course, genetically speaking, it has absolutely no relation to it. Westwood held out his skull he was examining. What's the theory behind the thickness? Very heavy. It seems like the added weight would carry a burden. Fine, Hawks. They're rare on this continent, but were an apex predator for a while. They'd have talons the size of steak knives and dive in close to a hundred miles an hour. And their beak is shaped like a javelin. They kill by puncturing holes in the skull. The larger animals that are more exposed develop much thicker cranial bones. Westwood held the skull up to the light, his fingers looking for a soft spot. Found none. He set it down and moved to another bone. In the market... We saw a lot of meat for sale. What's the nutritional crossover? The land animals have DNA somewhat similar to ours and many of the same sugars, amino acids, and proteins. We don't process it quite as efficiently as terrestrial meat products, but we've developed ways to cook it to make it more useful. Alan remembered the woman boiling the intestines in the market before he was rudely attacked. It certainly didn't look appetizing, but breaking down animal byproducts like that was necessary for survival on most worlds. He'd heard stories of people starving to death on bountiful planets because the plants and animals had chemistries too different from their own to be able to digest anything. Westwood pulled out his notebook and showed it to Sajay. It was a diagram of the three-toed footprint. What would leave a track like this, about two feet across? Definitely not a brush bird of any kind. They've got two toes and a heel. He picked up the cat parrot skull. This family has three toes, but we've never seen a specimen larger than a dog. Wouldn't surprise me if there were larger ones out there, like a tiger to a house cat. She looked at the diagram again. Only your tiger is larger than a ground car. Alan thought it odd that something so big could go unnoticed. But nobody's seen anything like that? Sajay shook her head. It doesn't surprise me. The Vineland cat, that's what we call them, like earth cats extremely stealthy. She walked over to a drawer and pulled out a foot made of articulated bones. There's not a lot of padding on the toes. They spend most of their time climbing on vine trunks like birds or monkeys. They're more arboreal in that sense. There goes my escape plan, Alan mumbled. Westwood examined the foot and walked back to the skull. He had a squint-eyed look as he examined it. Have you actually seen one of these on the hunt? No, we found carcasses with their bite marks and claw marks, so we have an idea what they eat. She pulled a book from the bookcase and opened it to a black and white photo of a cat-like creature with an avian-looking skull. Westwood traced his hand over the outline of the creature. It said it was smooth like a monitor lizard and led to a slender neck. Below the neck, short tufts of hair that looked more like bristles ran all the way to the shortened tail. Do you have any photographs of known carnivores that you've seen on the hunt? he asked. She grabbed another book. On the upper side of the south bank, we have a creature that's proximal to a bear. 
It has four toes, however. She flipped open to a paragraph of the creature, with a wicked set of teeth and an otherwise small skull. It had bristle-like hair from its gums to its long tail. Westwood looked it over. Do you have any vulture analogs? One second. She pulled out another book from the shelf and opened it to a photograph of a species of brush bird with long legs and a long, stout neck. Westwood laid the three books side by side. He set the cat's skull next to them. Sajay looked them over. A light went on in her eyes. Interesting. Dr. Joylock is going to have to do some revisions to his research. Westwood shook his head. I wouldn't go that far yet. I could be making a jump here as well. Alan spoke up. I I'm sorry. I, I don't know what I'm looking at here. Westwood pointed to the bare neck of the Vineland cat. This cat may be more of an opportunistic vulture than a hunter. Vultures and other carrion eaters tend to not have a lot of hair or feathers on their neck to avoid infection from eating rancid meat. If you look at its teeth, they're more suited for cutting flesh like a steak knife than delivering a fatal kill based upon the angle. Of course, that doesn't mean anything for certain. There's no reason to believe its larger cousin isn't a hunter. But anatomically, they have more in common with something that waits for a kill. So we're looking for something else? No, I'm reasonably sure this is what we're looking for, and it's what left the track. It's at least distantly related to the Vineland cat. What I suspect is that its killing of large prey like humans is something of a special occurrence for it. Opportunity? asked Alan. That's one possibility. Disruption is another. This is a large continent, and humans are at a pretty tiny portion. For some reason, it's decided to stick around and eat them instead of moving on and going about its normal feeding cycle. Is that a good or a bad thing? Westwood replied, still looking at the skull. Bad. Real bad. It means it won't stop until it gets stopped. Chapter 7 After looking at a few more bones, Westwood thanked Sajay and then stepped onto the porch and lit a cigar. He looked out across the valley and tapped his fingers on the railing. Alan was pretty sure he was thinking and waited for him to speak. Westwood finally spoke, but still faced the valley. Those skulls bother me. He tapped the butt of his gun. This will go through any of those specimens fine. You start doubling and tripling the thickness, and we've got a problem. You're looking at nature's equivalent of ceramic body armor. Can't you use an armor-piercing bullet? Asked Alan, not quite sure if such a thing existed. Not on this world. Westwood puffed on a plume of smoke, then regarded his cigar. They don't have a military to speak of, on account of no wars. Right now, my rifle is the highest caliber weapon on the planet. Alan better understood why Westwood never let it out of his sight. After they left the zoological station, they headed downhill toward a group of ramshackle buildings near the water, built by someone who refused to believe there was such a thing as right angles. Like most of the town, they were made from dark green wood from the trunk vines. These buildings had an even sootier appearance than the rest of the buildings, and their exteriors looked intentionally neglected, with peeling paint and broken trimming. Soon the cobblestone gave way to gravel and dirt. Alan noticed the children playing nearby seemed even grimier by frontier standards, and were giving them, or at least him, a suspicious eye. He turned to Westwood. Can I just give you my wallet now and save us the trouble of getting mugged? Westwood grunted and kept walking. Alan was at least hoping he'd take his rifle from his back and make a show of it, 
but Westwood seemed oblivious to the darker turn, or just didn't care. They came upon a row of buildings on a pier, where barges and keelboats were unloading barrels and the occasional animal carcass. Westwood looked down the row until he saw what he was looking for. Three men holding beer mugs were loitering outside a broken-down shack. Nearby were a half-dozen horses, loaded with packs and a few very angry brushbirds tied to tall posts. Westwood nodded at the men and entered. One of the brushbirds honked at Alan, convincing him to follow him inside. The saloon was filled with what Alan could only describe as burly men and equally burly women. He felt so self-conscious of his outlandish safari outfit, he forgot about the rip in the back of his pants. Do we really need a drink now? He whispered to Westwood. I'm not here for a drink, he said as he promptly sidled up to the bar and ordered two drinks. He slid two coins across to the bartender, a heavy-set woman with thick forearms. Is there a play of the Orpheum tonight? She gave Alan a wink, then poured two of the local specials. Alan took a slow sip. It wasn't anywhere nearly as bad as he feared. A little too much brandy to tea for his liking, but palatable. He surmised the ratio of brandy to tea depended on the time of day and what part of town you were in. Westwood tilted his glass to the bartender. He took a sip, then looked around the room. You have any trappers that work on the north side of the river? The bartender looked around the room. Over there, Dr. Westwood. Ash and Miss Dion just came back from upcountry. She pointed to a heavyset man with a dark curly beard and a fit-looking woman with dark features and an olive complexion next to him. They were dressed in a combination of leather and pelts. Westwood tipped his head, picked up his drink, and walked over to the table. Pardon me, folks. May I sit here for a moment and ask you about upcountry? The bearded man, Ash, gave Westwood a friendly grin and pulled out a chair for him. You must be Professor Westwood. Sit, sit. He looked over at Alan. Tell your friend he can come here, too. Alan took a seat next to Westwood. It shouldn't have surprised him how fast word about Westwood had spread. It probably made the papers and went up and down the valley on telegraph and keelboat alike. I hear you're going to try and straighten out that mess up at Grassy Bend, said Miss Dion. Shame what happened to those folks. Crazy Aggies, offered up Ash. Aggies? asked Alan. Yeah, Aggies, you know, plant eaters, said Miss Dion. Vegetarians? Westwood replied. Churchy folk, mostly, replied Ash. Interesting, Westwood trailed off. I don't suppose you folks have any idea what kind of creature we're looking at up there? My guess would be some kind of meaner brushbird, some species we haven't seen yet. Ash looked at Miss Dion and she nodded. Westwood pulled his journal from his pack and turned to the page where he'd reproduced the track. Here's the thing. This is what kind of track they say it left. That ain't no brush bird, said Ash. Miss Dion agreed. Ash took a closer look at the illustration. That looks like a vincat. He pushed the journal toward the woman. Have you ever seen a vincat that large? Westwood asked. Ash grinned. Lord, no. I don't think I'd ever go back up country if I did. Brush birds can be dangerous, but they're stupid and predictable. A vincat like that? That'd be something to reckon. He looked at the rifle strapped to Westwood's back. And I'd want something bigger than that. Let me ask you another question. We just got back from the zoological station, and they've been under the impression that vincats were predators. You ever seen one make a kill? 
Ash and Dion looked at each other and shrugged. I seen him go after wounded baby Yon beasts, but never an outright kill, said Ash. Westwood pulled out a guidebook and turned to a page with a drawing of a Yon beast and showed it to Alan. It was a squat quadruped with a long yoke-like antlers. To Alan, it looked like the owner of the large leg he saw back at the market. Westwood pointed to the picture. Says here they migrate back and forth from down country to up country and cross the river. That's where most of the hunters get them. They sometimes even corral them off the marsh area, offered Ash. Miss Dion spoke up. We spend most of our time looking for smaller game. Although, she looked over at Ash. Sometimes, now Ash tells me I'm hearing things, get the feeling there's something out there following us. She's using that as an excuse to get back to town more often. Dion slapped his hand. Shush, this is important they hear this. Sometimes you get the feeling there's something big just watching you. Ears perked. Have you ever seen anything? Even indirectly? Asked Westwood. Dion looked over at Ash, then back at Westwood. Up by Yoshi Ridge one time, I got that feeling and I looked around. There was nothing. Then I noticed something. You know how the trunk vines get all twisty and cast crazy shadows? Now how are they gonna know that if they just got here, interrupted Ash. Quiet now, as I was saying. I looked over my shoulder and saw a shadow of a trunk vine, and it was big, like real big. Ash was up ahead and didn't see it, but I did. Out of the corner of my eye, I watched that shadow slink away, real slow-like. I tried not to move, because it looked like it was trying to move away. Then it was gone. I hollered for Ash, and he came over with his gun, but it was nowhere to be seen. Probably just a big brush bird, said Ash. It wasn't no brush bird, Ash. I measured out the size of the trunk vine it was on, and it was 20 feet long easily. That was one big critter up there watching me. Ash shrugged. Westwood made a note in his journal. There's one more thing, added Dion. I climbed up that trunk to have a look at what the claw marks looked like, and it looks like what you have in your book, about the same size. I don't, don't know if there were claw marks until you showed them to me. I never told Ash, because I just thought he would say it was some scratches. Now it makes sense, she paused, and it stunk a bit. Maybe that was Ash. Well, that's terrifying, said Alan. Westwood glanced at him sideways. We're not here to go to the petting zoo. He turned to Ash and Dion. Thank you for your help. I know if we have any trouble, we can call on you for help. Fat chance, Ash said with a laugh. We're going to stay down country until you get this thing. Let us know when you need help skinning it, though. I might take you up on that offer, Westwood said as he tipped his hat, finished his drink, and headed out with Alan in tow. Grendel's Shadow is available on Amazon for 99 cents. Buy it on your desktop or your Kindle. You can also use the Kindle app, available on the iPad as well as all major phones, including iPhones, Blackberries, Windows 7, and Android. You can also look for it on the Nook Store and Apple's iBooks. If you'd like to purchase this audiobook in its entirety without interruption, or a physical copy of Grendel's Shadow, head to andrewmain.com slash books.